Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. God is so good that his rain falls on the just and the unjust, on the grateful and the ungrateful, on the one who prays and on the one who doesn't even know there's anyone to pray to. What's the difference at the time of harvest? We give God the glory. We know it was his work. They're kind of like oblivious, but they're still thankful. They just don't know who to be thankful to. Today we have part two of a three-part message entitled, The Lamp, The Seeds, and the Storms. Pastor Sam is taking us through the final 20 verses in the Gospel of Mark, chapter four. And in today's broadcast, we are starting in verse 26. We begin by looking at Jesus' parable of the growing seed and the parable of the mustard seed. So let's listen in. Now he moves from the lamp back to the seed and he gives us two parables related to the seeds. He said, verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow and he himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens immediately, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. First phrase after he says the kingdom of heaven is like this. He's trying to explain something that's beyond our comprehension, but using something everyone in that day could observe and would understand. It's like someone scattering seed on the ground. And when it says he sleeps and rises by day and the seed sprouts, he's not saying it happens overnight. It's really saying he sleeps and he rises and he sleeps and he rises and he sleeps and he rises. But each day he goes out and one day the, the, the seed has sprouted and, and then the next day it's growing. And it says he doesn't even know how. Now, we know a lot more today than they knew in that day as to the processes. But it hasn't changed the fact that it happens without any human intervention. In fact, in this parable, there's one, the, the, the sower sows the seed, he plants the seed, and then he harvests the crop. Everything in between, that's just the Lord. The Lord takes care of the rest. Now, um, progress in areas like irrigation, and we've made great progress in those kind of areas, obscures what was once so obvious uh, at least in that day, because you would have planted and you would have prayed and you would have waited for the rain to come because you needed rain to germinate the seed. You didn't have a way to go out and water the field. And so uh, unless you were doing a small garden, which we've all done, there are a lot of ways to do that. But we're talking massive fields with lots of grain. They were absolutely reliant on God and they knew it. Now, not everyone prayed, but here's the good news that God is so good that his rain falls on the just and the unjust, on the grateful and the ungrateful, on the one who prays and on the one who doesn't even know there's anyone to pray to. What's the difference at the time of harvest? We give God the glory. We know it was his work. 
they're kind of like oblivious, but they're still thankful. They just don't know who to be thankful to. So they thank Mother Earth or they just thank their own ingenuity or look how well that worked out. I planted right before the rain. What a coincidence. So uh, it's a good picture for us because it's not just talking again about planting a field. It's talking about planting God's word. And the same reality takes place. I get to tell you Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again. And I know most of you are like, we've heard that. This is one of those, if I've heard it, you know, once I've heard it a thousand times. And if you've come for the last 35 years, 10,000 times. But, but here's the important thing is that, that as the word of God is sown, I've done my part. And then I can just trust the Lord. He's going to water that. He's going to bring, cause it to germinate. He's going to cause it to sprout up and grow. He's going to bring a harvest of righteousness. So two things happen at every service. I always share that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again, because that's the gospel seed, you see. And I always, at the end of the service, give opportunity for any and all who haven't given their life to the Lord to do just that. Why? That's the harvesting part. And those are the only two parts I'm really uh, have, have any say in. Now, in between those two things, I read you the word. Why? Because once you're born again, you need fuel. You need food. And the word of God, it's seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So the man goes he plants, later he harvests, but harvests, later he takes place, he goes out and har. Well, I, I guess I had it right the first time. Uh, but anyway, the, the seed in the soil, by the way, gifts from God. The sunshine that, that causes the process to work puts energy into it, if you will, warms the ground and makes that whole thing happen. Uh, those are gifts from God too. So you got the seed, you have the soil, you have the rain, you have the sun, all of that provided by God. So even the part that we participate in, we have to have what he provides for it to work. We read it, verse 28. Take a look at it though, because two words Jump out and I'll show you why. For the earth yields crops by itself. Those are the two words. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So here's what we see happening. That the words by itself come from a Greek word, which is automatos kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Even though it's all Greek to us. Automatos, it sounds a little bit like automatic. And that's because that's where we get our word automatic. That's where we get the concept of automation. And what we have in the germination, in the planting of the seed, and, and then everything that happens until the harvest, it's, it's a picture of God's automation, if you will. It looks automatic because he's built into the seed and the sun and the soil and the rain, the whole process. We don't have to do anything but watch and wait and God's word will accomplish its perfect will. So um, th those words again by itself, 
Um, it means without visible cause, without human agency, without human intervention. It's God's revelation, again, of his automation in every seed, including the gospel. Most of you are familiar with the water cycle. In its simplest form, there are three stages. The, um, the seas which cover most of the earth and, uh, and contain 96.5% um, of all the earth's water. Um, you, you know, salt water. God has built the process in there where, well, the, the water evaporates as the sun provides energy and heat. It turns into a vapor and we see it in the form of clouds passing by. And then there's condensation, the second part, as the water vapor cools, that gas cools, and it condenses into water that then returns to the earth as precipitation. That's uh, water, rain, snow, sleet, and such. And, and, uh, and so as it falls to the earth, some of it falls here in the valley. Some of it gets up to the mountains where the higher up it gets, the more rain falls or snow falls. And it, it, it creates the snowpack. It fills the streams. It fills the lakes. It fills the rivers. The streams run into the rivers. The rivers run into one another. And ultimately, all of them lead back to the ocean where the whole process begins again. Now, there's something else that takes place there that might not be as obvious, although you're certainly aware of it, just might not have thought about it. And that is God has built into that process desalination. In other words, the salt water, which is undrinkable for us, it's taken up into the air. And I don't know where that process takes part in all this, but what falls is good, clean drinking water. That couldn't just be, wow, nature's so amazing. Mother Earth, look what she does. No, God has automated the process to turn the seas, which are undrinkable, into water that is drinkable. And the water falls everywhere. I read recently, just a week or two ago, that Israel is giving technology to Iran because Iran is experiencing serious drought, that technology is desalination. And it cost millions and, well, billions to build those plants and make all that happen. They're giving the technology away. Why? Because they just want to bless those people who hate them and, and do good to those who curse them. And I'm thinking, wow, that kind of sounds like Jesus. And, and I'm intrigued by this, though. While they're spending boku bucks to make that happen, God provides it for free. We don't have to do anything to get fresh drinking water except not pollute the fresh drinking water, which we seem to be pretty good at. Well, in any case, we move on from that. He gives us yet another. He says in verse 30, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, it is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out large branches. So the birds of the air may nest under its 
shade. The mustard seed is a very interesting seed because it is the smallest or one of the smallest of all seeds that produce herbs. In fact, it produces a massive bush, but you need 725 to 760 seeds to get one gram. So measure something out at home sometime that's one gram and then look and say that would be 725 to 760 mustard seeds. One gram, um, uh, that's what you start with. If you have 28 grams, you have an ounce. So if you were to plant an ounce of mustard seeds, you can do the math later. That would be 28 times 750 or 760. And uh, you're going to get a lot of mustard. By the way, the mustard plant, it's an annual shrub and uh, becomes the largest in the garden. It can grow 12 to 15 feet tall and it only takes a few weeks to do it. And by the way, it's a beautiful plant. Now, if you have a normal yard like we do, if you planted that, it would be a quarter of your yard or more. And so that won't work for me and a couple dogs and, you know, grandkids and all that. But, but if you have farmland, mustard, it's beautiful to plant. It's valuable. You can sell those seeds, although not as valuable as some others. But that's a study for another time. So it's a fast growing shrub and, uh, and he's, he's using this seed. This tiny seed becomes this massive bush and he says it shoots out large branches so the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now, because of the first parable introduced in this same chapter, the parable of the sower and the soils, where we saw that the birds come and snatch away the good seed. The birds we learned were representatives of Satan. I've always seen this parable as a negative, as a warning. And uh, I do want to say not all my peers see it that way. Not all my missionary friends see it that way. So I want to share the two ideas for you. And I want to want to share that God's given me a revelation. They're absolutely both true. It all has to do with timing, though, and I'll explain that. So in light of the first parable, I've always seen this as the enemy's work. It's a picture of unnatural growth as the church just becomes this massive thing that that just anyone and everyone can fit into. The birds are there eating and and stealing away the seed from others and such. So uh, in church history, we see the purifying fires of persecution were extinguished by a man named Constantine the Great. Now listen, I'm not a big fan of anyone who adds the great to the back of their name. You know, if you start calling yourself Josh the Great or Jose the Great, you have problems. And Constantine decided, I'm great, you know. And, and so anyway, that, that he, it, he makes an edict for time's sake in 313 AD, decriminalizing Christian worship, calling for religious tolerance and setting the stage for Christianity to ultimately become the official authorized religion of the Roman Empire. The effects of that weren't all that great. But track with me on this for a moment. Up to this point, 
Christians were being crucified. Christians were being beheaded. Christians were being stoned. Christians were being sawn in two. Christians were being killed with spears and swords. They were being persecuted. They were sent to be eaten by the lions. They were forced to fight against one another and as entertainment for the masses of Roman citizens. And so during that time, we're told that the blood of the martyrs became, that it watered the seed of the gospel and the church just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. But once the church was, well, decriminalized, once the church was authorized, all of a sudden, all these unbelieving pagans poured into its fellowship. They weren't converted. They weren't born again. They never heard they needed to repent. They were never told unless you repent of sin, unless you believe in Christ, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And because of that, the church witness was not only watered down, but you had all these unbelievers sitting side by side with believers. And in many cases, the unbelievers rose to power because, you know, people, the, the flesh desires and loves to be first. And here's where I'm going with all this. I, I do think we should always have unbelievers in our midst. I pray for them. I reach out to them. I invite them. You should be doing the same. And no unbeliever should ever come through these doors and feel uncomfortable sitting with us. And here's an irony. Some of them do. And they look and they think, oh my gosh, I don't belong with all these spiritual people. Would you just get to know them so they can relax and realize, hey, you're just like them. Saved by grace, though, through faith. That not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. So here's what happens. People should come in, but they should hear that God loves them, but that he's not okay with their lifestyle that they need to change, that their lifestyle needs to change, that their mindset needs to change, that their habits need to change. Not so he will love them, but because he loves them, because he laid down his life for them. He wants them to have a relationship with him and light and darkness just don't connect. They just don't fellowship because the light dispels the darkness. So that was a season where things were going the wrong direction. As bad as it seemed when Christians were persecuted, Christians were purified, Christians were holy. They stood out in the community as those who would stand up for the Lord even to the point of death. So they're added to the earthly roles without being added to the Lamb's book of life. It was devastating to the spiritual health of Jesus church and to the witness of Jesus church that we're a separated people unto him and for him. In 380 AD, the edict of Thessalonica by Emperor Theodosius sealed the deal, made, it, made uh, Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And it's never gone well when Christians were just accepted by everyone. Be careful, Jesus said, when everyone speaks well of you. Now, we don't want to give them reason to dislike us, but it's not a popularity contest. We want to be honest with them. We need to be able to speak the truth 
in love. And this is a culture that is not accepting of truth or absolutes or, or anything that would challenge their desires to do whatever they want, as if there'll be no, re, you know, um, no outcome of that or no negative outcome of that. Well, there's another side to this coin or equation or whatever we might call it. And that is many missionary organizations see this parable as a promise of the universal growth and ultimate triumph of Jesus' church. And I want to say, because I'm convinced the first is true, I've often just said, well, they can't both be true. And then I realized, because I'm finally maturing. Here I am, 40 years later, starting to get it. I realized that, that what they see is true. It just can't happen here or now. It's not a reason not to go out. You see, if you're leaving everything and everyone to, to go out on the mission field, you'd like to think you're going to be effective out there. But the idea that everybody's going to be one to the Lord, that the whole planet's going to become Christians, and then Jesus will come back to claim his bride, it's foreign to what he taught. He taught the last days would be like the days of Noah. Things didn't go so well, as you're aware. The days of Lot. Things weren't going well there either. And he, and he said there would be tribulation such as never been or ever will be again. Paul tells us men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and lovers of stuff and lovers of everything except lovers of God and lovers of people. There's so much to say that can't be the case. It's not going to happen first, but it is going to happen. And here's how it plays out. In the millennium, after the tribulation, let, let's get the, the order. After the re resurrection and rapture, after the tribulation, seven years, after his return to rule and reign at that time, his rule and reign of righteousness will cover the earth. Righteousness, we're told, will cover the earth. No one will have to teach his neighbor because everyone will know the Lord. Everyone will know the truth. That day's coming, but it's not coming before Jesus comes. There won't be peace on earth till the Prince of Peace returns to the earth. As he promised he would, this is why there's so much chaos and confusion related to the city of Jerusalem because you know Jesus ministered there in the temple, that Jesus was crucified there in Jerusalem, that he was raised from the dead there in Jerusalem, that, that he, you know, just went just outside of Jerusalem and ascended up into heaven. But he promised when he comes again, he'll set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. That, that same mount where he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That, that, that uh, mount will split in two. He'll enter through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem had to be, you know, inhabited, has to be inhabited when he returns. That, that he will enter and he will rule and reign from Jerusalem over the entire earth for a thousand years. So both of these prove to be useful and true. We've seen the first, we're seeing the first, but we will see the second in the promised future glory. 
In Matthew 13, when Jesus was asked why he spoke in parables, his primary reason was because it fulfilled prophecy by doing so. Now, after explaining his reason, he gave his disciples a little bit more info. In Matthew 13, 16 and 17, it says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Think of it this way. As we study through Jesus' parables, and these stories help us understand important truths about the kingdom of heaven, the information we are learning is extremely valuable. In the past, these truths were not clear to many. Even prophets and righteous men did not possess the knowledge that we gained in our study today. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.